Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have John Summers on the show and we'll be talking about his fine book of essays, Every Fury on Earth. John is a historian and social critic. He writes in the tradition of Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Richard Hofstetter, Christopher Lash, Tony Jutt, Sean Wilentz, Victor Davis Hanson, and so on and so forth. This is a fantastic collection of essays. If you're interested in the academic life, in the life of the mind, in history as a profession, in the ways in which historians can become socially and politically engaged, you should really read this book. I'm glad I did. I see a bright future for John as a historian and as a critic, and I'm sure you will agree with me after you listen to the interview. Here it is. Hi, John. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Very, very well. well. The weather is nice in Boston. It is nice in Boston, and you're at Boston College right now in your office. Is that correct? I am. I'm a visiting scholar this year at the um, Boati Center for Religion and American Public Life. That's terrific. I should tell our uh, listeners that we're talking to John Summers today, and we'll be talking about his book of essays, Every Fury on Earth, which I think is the best title of uh, any book I've encountered in months and months, but we can come to how you chose that title in a moment. Uh, I'm sitting here in Iowa. It's actually uh, not much of an advertisement for Iowa because it's nine degrees today. Although it's sunny, that's that's something. Nine degrees and it's sunny. Yeah, yeah. It's, we 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 uh, we we uh, thank the Almighty for small blessings here. Um, so let me begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and where you went to school, and that sort of thing. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd be delighted. I was um, was born in Gettysburg, uh, Pennsylvania. And I uh, grew up in the 80s in Gettysburg, which was, um, although it was overrun by tourists as it is now, it was a much more provincial place, like a lot of um, small towns in the United States in the 80s. Um, and um, my family members were um, businessmen and um, high school teachers and uh, small businessmen and high school teachers and nurses. Um, no one really from academia, no one a Democrat, um, it was um, a place of a rural conservatism, as I mentioned in the introductory essay of the book, which contains a little bit of this autobiography. Adams County, Pennsylvania, which is my home county, has voted for a Republican in a presidential uh, election and every election since 1920. Mm-hmm. So um, it was. Um, I was also a Republican and and very strongly tilted that way. And I went to college in rural Virginia at James Madison University. Mm-hmm. Graduated from James Madison in 2003. And it wasn't until I um, went to work in Washington D.C. at a reference publisher after college that I began to get interested in professional history and then, um, by extension, uh, the world of ideas. And that happened in night school at George Mason, mm-hmm. where I, it was my good fortune to um, enroll in, in classes there, um, mostly out of curiosity and to discover uh, Roy Rosenzweig, who pa- 
last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, knew, I actually knew Roy, and he uh, was quite a titan of the disciplines. Yes, he was, and he was uh, he was uh, an incredibly decent person and um, and interested in a way that um, not all academic historians are in the education of, of young people. Mm-hmm. And he gave me and others uh, like me in that program a lot of attention. Um, Larry Levine was there as well. I actually uh, I know Larry Levine too. I was uh, in my very early graduate career. A reader for him, uh, a reader meaning I graded all his papers. But oh, I see. <laughs> I, was, I was fortunate enough to get to know him. Right. I remember he, he, he. I remember after he won, the, I think he won a MacArthur Genius Grant, didn't he? He did. Or something like that. Yes, I remember he took us out for a nice lunch after that. Yeah, he, Larry was also a very, very generous man and um, and interested in in, in educating um, young historians. So I really became um, infatuated um, and even enthralled with uh, with um, academic history, with professional history at the time of George Mason. And um, I it took me three years to get a degree there. I was working full time still, um, and then I applied to graduate school at um, at the doctoral level and managed to get into the University of Rochester, which was another stroke of luck. Um, because although Christopher Lash had died in 1994, uh, I discovered uh, Lash uh, when I got to uh, mm-hmm. Rochester, and when I got to, I discovered his 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 body of work, which mm-hmm. is a sort of standing challenge. Mm-hmm. And I I I uh, studied under Robert Westbrook, who was a friend of Lash and an author of um, John Dewey and American Democracy, mm-hmm. and I became interested in intellectual history. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to finish my degree. I did a lot of teaching at um, Harvard and elsewhere mm-hmm. in the meantime, um, and then I finished my degree in 2006. So at Rochester, uh, unlike a lot of places, uh, they didn't discourage uh, the graduate students from writing for magazines and for newspapers mm-hmm. and for the broadest range of scholarly journals as well. Mm-hmm. So I um, took it into my head that it was a proper thing to do to begin to express myself in every way I can. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was learning, uh, and I published in all sorts of different places, uh, and this collection is a distillation of, of, uh, of, of my essays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we should all applaud you for writing these. I, I know that um, my own graduate students uh, have been told that it is a good thing to try to publish in as many of these organs as possible and to develop a, uh, a series of relationships with the editors and this kind of thing. It can help uh, in, a, in a scholarly career. And, of course, uh, th- this is where I think um, most of the heavy lifting is done in educating the public. Uh, as opposed to the kinds of books that I myself have written that, as I like to say, only my mother has read, and right. she only claims to have read them. So. Yes, well, that's a nice qualification. Yeah. I mean, in, in my experience, again, I've been, uh, I've been really fortunate to have teachers who have not been strictly professional. So um, um, Roy and his colleagues at the American Social History Project in New York at CUNY, at CUNY Grad Center, Josh Brown and Steve Breyer, were working on um, the multi uh, the adaptation of their textbook, Who Built America, mm-hmm. a social history textbook. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I was at George Mason, Roy founded the Center for History and New Media, mm-hmm. which is now um, one of the leading centers of its kind. I wouldn't say it's the leading center of its kind in the world. So all along, at every step, I was simultaneously inter- introduced to serious ideas and to academic uh, norms and rituals, but simultaneously a critique of academic norms and rituals, sometimes tacit, sometimes, as in the case of Christopher Lash and Rob Westbrook, explicit, um, that uh, serious ideas uh, must be um, communicated to the public, Mm -hmm. to many different kinds of publics. Mm -hmm. And how exactly did you, uh, this is sort of a logistical question, and I'll pass it on to my graduate students and anybody who's listening, Uh, how did you actually manage to break into some of these uh, journals and magazines and so on and so forth? 
Um, well, uh, persistence, I guess. Um, um, I'm writing a biography, and I've been studying Q. Wright Mills for a number of years, and Mills has um, um, a nice kind of sociology of culture, which which, which finds its uh, center at the craftsmanship level. Mm -hmm. So um, any one of us who discovered uh, at the outset that we weren't we're not a genius um, has to work at the craftsman level, mm -hmm. and um, the craftsman level includes um, <laughs> a lot of qualities of character that don't have anything necessarily to do with a kind of formal articulation of ideas, um, but, um, but, but nonetheless kind of bring the ideas into the world. And, and um, you know, there's no formula. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, since I've been writing history essays, which hasn't been that long, 1998 or 1999, I believe, is the first publication, um, all the norms of communication have been upended with, mm -hmm. the, with the Internet, and mm -hmm. things are changing rapidly. So, um, and I think once you publish... Um, one or two essays, uh, then you can take those to other editors and say, well, look, I've published here. Mm -hmm. Could you give me a shot uh, here? And, mm -hmm. and in my experience, that that often works mm -hmm. because um, at least how it used to be, and I suppose it's still this way to some extent, editors um, look to their peers mm -hmm. to decide who to bring to print. Yeah, a friend of mine who writes uh, in these sorts of journals says that the best way to published in one of them is to have published in one of them, mm -hmm. uh, which is a bit of a paradox. But I know that I went through this myself. I like to show my uh, students a couple of files that I have on my computer. One is a published popular essays, and then I have another file, unpublished popular essays, which is five times as long. <laughs> right. And for every, yeah, right, exactly. For, I mean, that's important to remember. And, and I, I, mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, trying to be facetious when I say about persistence. I mean, for every, there are 18 essays in this collection mm -hmm. of, of maybe, um, you know, 30 or 40 published essays all, all told. And now there are, you know, for every one of those that got published, you know, there are a hundred more ideas that are yeah. never brought to fruition. And there are 200 more or yeah. many more actually unanswered emails. So um, you have to really develop a thick skin in this business. No, that's right. Yeah. So I have a, I have a, a, a friend of mine that I've, I've known for many years and I just actually reestablished re contact with him. He used to say that he was uh, not a carbon-based life form because he uh, breathed and ate um, rejection. <laughs> That's what he claimed. Yeah, that was his thing. So, uh, very brilliant guy too. Um, I I'm going to read the uh, initial quotation in the book from James Agee, which I, I have to say I really love. It has caused uh, a lot of sort of soul searching on my part. And then I'm going to ask you why you uh, chose this particular quotation. And it goes like this: Every fury on earth has been absorbed in time as art or as religion, or as authority in one form or another, the deadliest blow the enemy of the human soul can strike is to do fury honor. Why did you choose that quotation, and what do you think it means? Um, well, what I think it means is it kind of poses, um, poses a, a, a paradox, um, which I talk about a little bit in the foreword. Um, how is it possible to believe in the transcendent or, or, or even the progressive you know, power of ideas well, uh, disbelieving in authority, that is to say, if one believes in authority, then one is likely to be honored. Mm -hmm. One is likely to get lots of prizes. And, mm -hmm. of, uh, um, and, and it, it's, it's astonishing how many prizes there are, as a matter of fact. No, it's true. Actually, it's, every yeah. no, it's funny. We'll come to that in a second, but I, we'll come to talking about uh, Harvard, where both, of, uh, both you and I taught. Well, one of the things I, I learned while there is that um, it actually is, is pretty difficult to graduate from Harvard without winning some sort of prize. Because yeah. there are just so many of them. Um, but, but as I say, we'll, we'll come to that in a second. No, I, I found that the quotation uh, absolutely fascinating because, you know, one of the things I, 
I can say that I did when I entered graduate school, but I kind of wanted to set the world on its ear with ideas. And uh, what I discovered was they wanted me to write a monograph on early Russian history, which I guess is a fine thing, but I I, I did do some um, soul searching and had my doubts about whether I could do it. And I I did what they asked me to do um, with some effect, I guess. But I must say that in reading your essays that I very much admired the, the the courageousness and, and bravery of, of this kind of really speaking out and not to use a cliche, but to speak truth to power uh, in the way that you do in these r- really terrific essays. And I guess I should also say, um, sorry to go on so long, but no, please. I, I really see that, uh, and this is why I was so eager to talk to you, uh, that um, you really kind of stand uh, in, in an unusual place among historians today, and that is uh, you are a historian and a social and political critic. And, and you mentioned Christopher Lash, and he's somebody that we could mention there, but Arthur Schlesinger or Richard Hofstetter, and in my own field, uh, Robert Conquest and Richard Pipes, and then there's a sort of new crop of people, Tony Jutt and... Yes. Uh, Sean Lance and, and Victor yes. Davis Hanson. Right. Um, did you see yourself consciously uh, following in their footsteps? Um, in, well, I see myself. I don't know about consciously following in the footsteps. I mean, I have disagreements, political disagreements, with most of the people you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very impressed with Christopher Lash's work, which it's hard to tell. Um, it's hard to tell how much influence Lash still has. The world is in some ways very different than it was even in the early 90s when mm-hmm. he published The Revolt of the Elite. But mm-hmm. I thought his work was just exactly the kind of stuff that I would like to do myself. Mm-hmm. No, um, I, I, so I, 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 you know, one draws inspiration, uh, I think, um, as well as particular ideas, but mostly inspiration and courage, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tradition in American scholarship runs back to Emerson, of course, mm-hmm. and his self-reliance, which has, again, become kind of a cliche, mm-hmm. um, but I think if you if you read that essay in the proper spirit, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ferociousness in that essay, mm-hmm. and a lot of, of you know, fierce passion for independence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going back to Emerson, um, of course, who's not a historian, and, and mostly stuff on history I actually don't like very much, mm-hmm. sort of serious history, but nonetheless, um, I go back to him to kind of sort of draw strength, and I also like... James Agee um, very much for his independence and mm-hmm. Lash's independence. It's not so much um, a particular vocation or a particular definition of the vocation. We have this word now, thanks to Russell Jacoby, called the, the public intellectual, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a little bit of a misnomer because, strictly speaking, there is not a, anything that's a private intellectual, <laughs> or private writing, but there's kind of no antonym. Um, mm-hmm. It's only a matter of, I think, what kind of public one is hoping to reach. Mm-hmm. And uh, Emerson and, and, and Ag and, and Lash and um, people like Sean Vlance and Arthur Schlesinger were trying to speak to, and, and even Roy uh, Rosenzweig were trying to speak to the, um, uh, a broader public, not mm-hmm. just talking to other academics. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's fine and it's, it's necessary to, to drive for disciplinary knowledge, I think, and to try to advance the the conditions of the field, but I think it's, it's, one has to make a real effort to, to blind oneself to the, to the, the extremely broad range of intellectual resources that mm-hmm. are at our command as historians mm-hmm. uh, to, to see what's been what's possible, to see what's been done, and then to decide to spend many, many years, uh, or even the bulk of one's career, devoted to a very small field seems mm-hmm. to be uh, a manner of intimidating oneself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the reasons I, I did leave academia for a time because I was I was very frustrated with this. I had, I had written um, quite a bit on early Russian history, uh, which usually isn't a, 
at the top of anybody's publishing list. And um, I remember that uh, my department asked me uh, what my next project was going to be in early Russian history, and I, I had to honestly say that I had learned everything about Russian history I really wanted to know. Um, right. And so I, I, I left because, you know, it's funny. I've said this before on the show, but it bears repeating. I mean, my wife is a mathematician, and to mathematicians, the idea that a historian or somebody uh, thoughtful would work on one topic their whole life is laughable. They, they, they can't imagine why somebody would do such a thing. Um, and I, I have to say I'm sort of with them. Um, even though I do work in a discipline and I am a Russian historian, I, I have much broader interests. And, and I, I was very frustrated uh, toward the middle of my career with the fact that I, I, I wasn't allowed actually to pursue um, – Pursue these interests, and I, and I should say, I, not to not to point fingers at anyone. I, it no, wasn't, please do. It, it was, well, yes, it wasn't as if they they disallowed me uh, the, the option. It, I really kind of disallowed myself because I was, uh, you know, pursuing a kind of standard academic career in that way. And, and and I should say, let me ask you to speak about this a little bit. One of the things I've been tremendously frustrated with uh, recently is the because I work a lot on the web. Uh, and probably probably too much is the is the and this is going to be a cliche again is that is the disconnection between um, what we actually do as historians and any sort of public discourse at all uh, and that is to say we don't really seem to care that nobody reads our books um, you know and you, you have this very nice essay history as a vocation how, how, how would you if, you if you could change the historical discipline so that you know well just let me put it, put it that way how would you you know, blue sky, we'll say, as they say in the corporate world. Uh, how would you change the historical discipline? Or what do you think we should do in order to reach the public? Well, I think, I mean, I've done, you know, as in, in putting together these essays um, as much as I think, uh, I mean, I can do, and and perhaps, um, I mean, it can be done. Uh, the, the, as long as there, we have a production problem. I mean, I, I, it, it, it's a pity in a way to kind of revert to the language of um, um, industrial production mm -hmm. and division of labor, but the the profession has been very much shaped upon these the needs of uh, teaching the students and teaching the students in the public universities at least has been shaped by the funding by the state legislatures which is which is which is it comes down to a political question i mean it's 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 unless we have um, uh, professional associations that take seriously the idea of a free and independent professional um, profession as a class, as a um, um, as, a, as a craft, um, the standards that we can measure ourselves against, measure our losses against, I think, are always going to be non-existent. So it's, it's, I don't, I don't have structural proposals to, mm -hmm. to, uh, but I think that what we need to do is to continue to criticize mm -hmm. as much as possible. I mean, it, it is also uh, a cliche, I think, to continue to say, oh, what a pity it is that we have such an narrow specialization. Mm -hmm. But as long as we have exemplars like Sean Valance, I think, and, and Arthur Schlesinger and, and Christopher Lass, um, we can, I think, at least try to uphold informally um, critical standards. Mm -hmm. um, as far as changing the profession, I don't, I, I don't see that it's that it's going to happen. Yeah, no, I don't either. I was, uh, this was 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. I was, I wrote a series of um, uh, relatively ill-tempered letters to the AHA about the overproduction of PhDs in history. There are a lot of PhD programs in history that one wonders whether. Uh, should exist, and, and there certainly are a lot of history PhDs produced who never work. Um, and, and I guess th this was my issue back in the day. I've kind of mellowed a little bit in my old age, um, and I'm producing some PhDs myself uh, for my sins. But yeah, I, I, I think that you know, I, I, 
again, to, to point fingers for just a moment, I, I do wonder what role that the American Historical Association thinks it has in these things, um, because it doesn't do very much about them. Uh, well, I was um, fortunate to be on the uh, first committee the AHA um, initiated on, on graduate and part-time employment issues. And I sat in committee rooms with um, members of the AHA uh, on, 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 and, and listened to them discuss the issues. And the reason the committee was founded is because Eric Foner was president of the AHA, incoming president of the AHA that year, and he decided that it was an issue that the profession had to confront. David Montgomery was there as well, uh, and and you know they were interested in um, really sharpening this issue, which would involve. I shouldn't, I'm not speaking for them, but mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a there was a minority strain, I think, in the committee's discussion, and, and at least I I was also um, very much interested in pushing this strain, where the, 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 this issue had to be sharpened by taking the, the question of benefits eligible work uh, to the accrediting agencies, and there are you know half a dozen uh, major accrediting agencies for colleges and universities. And that would have involved a real fight, which is to say that this we're not we're not going to you know accredit your history department if you're um, you know, if you're um, mm. employing too many part-time teachers, I mean that's a real kind of confrontational mm -hmm. struggle right at the heart of the question, and mm -hmm. they're just not, they just were not interested in doing that. Probably wisely because they probably would not have been able to sustain it. I mean, the AHA is a very large organization that doesn't mm -hmm. have anything near a consensus, I think, mm -hmm. on um, what the profession should look like. So as a result, the professional ideal, I think, has mostly collapsed, and what we have are historians who are employees. Mm -hmm. The difference I tried to talk about in some of these essays between a prof being a professional and an employee ought to be as large as possible. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's not much of a difference. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, the difference between a professional and an employee. Well, a professional, I think, um, you know, um, uh, has should have, uh, you know, to put it, uh, to put it sort of quickly, um, uh, a greater uh, control over their creative life um, than um, at least a free professional than um, than the needs of their departments, the needs of their students, the needs of their state legislatures might mm -hmm. want them to have. Um, there's a kind of way of talking about, um, you know, intellectual production, and and and, and that that I think is 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 very much like industrial production, very much modeled on the sort of capitalist work discipline. And I think that the struggle of labor unions, the old AFL, and to, even to some to a lesser extent, I think the CIO has mm -hmm. been not only over bread and butter issues, but about um, Questions about creativity and questions about skill, questions about uh, the aesthetic component of skill. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly a, a matter of control. I mean, I'm, you can't sort of give it too much content, especially when it doesn't exist. Yeah. But it's a matter of kind of establishing independence from from the point of production. I think. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I see what you mean. And one thing that's always surprised me a little bit is that um, once historians get tenure, they they don't seem to become any more adventurous in their work. And this always is something of a paradox. I mean, here you have job security putatively for life, yet you continue to do exactly the same thing that you did before. I um, yeah, well, I think that's the case. But, I mean, I was arguing about this with, this, with, this, with a friend of mine at the University of Chicago uh, just the other day, and his argument was that he's sort of going to do his bit um, until he gets tenure, uh, and then he will become adventurous. I mean, this is the, I think, yeah. you know, what I told him, the kind of equivalent of the, um, of the man who uh, takes the advertising job, or the woman who takes the advertising job, and says that, you know, once I have enough money and pay my house off, I'm going to start, um, you know, doing my painting or, or, or mm -hmm. writing my novels. Right. It, it's sort of one wonders why it doesn't happen more. 
Yeah, no, but it, it it often doesn't happen, I, and that's been the kind of surprising thing to me is that is that you know especially in terms of uh, writing, I guess what I just call popular books, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, historians, history books sell well. I've studied publishing a little bit myself, and uh, there is ample opportunity uh, to get. Um, literary agents to go pitch your book ideas and actually even make a certain amount of money uh, producing popular is that right? books. Yeah, no, it is possible. Yes, uh, it is, and I could give some examples of things that 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 I have done to to do this in the hopes of reaching a little bit broader audience. I'm not, I'm not a terribly good popular writer myself, but I think my agent is very disappointed in me. But in any event, you know, th but th this doesn't usually happen. Usually it's the next monograph on something extraordinarily narrow. And, you know, I, I can't fault people for, um, you know, thinking that uh, that they ought to continue as they have. Um, but I, I do I do wonder about the, you know, the – I, in my own career, I wonder what kind of contribution I'm making by writing an, another monograph or another series of articles. I know the dean likes it, um, but I'm not sure anybody else does. I, I don't usually talk about these things terribly loudly uh, for obvious reasons. But Well, I, 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 I do and I have, but I, I want to stress that there's really no plan here. <laughs> there's no <laughs> formula. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, – uh, I mean, I'm interviewing for academic history jobs. Yeah, sure at the end of the month because I need to, um, money to pay my rent. Sure. Um, and I think that it is possible to, I'm told I, I should say that it's possible to do serious intellectual work while uh, working at a corporate job or a, at a nonprofit or something. Mm -hmm. I, I, maybe that's the case. Maybe it was more the case uh, six weeks ago mm -hmm. than it was now. But, uh, you know, I think that um, many of us um, who uh, have this kind of uh, uh, spirit of you know, independence and, and sort of just speaking out and, and, and doing nothing for our career or, in my case, uh, doing nothing for money, uh, eventually come to a point where we have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, there are people who have managed to make it. Uh, I'll point to Kevin Matson, uh, who is a professor at Ohio University and a very good professor, a very good teacher, and a writer of popular history books. He writes for Descent Magazine, mm -hmm. um, who came out of Rochester, or David Greenberg, who mm -hmm. writes a column for Slate Magazine mm -hmm. and has a background in journalism and mm -hmm. writes for the New Republican, writes very good books about political history. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there, it is possible, and perhaps it's as simple as trying to find a place where the administration is enlightened enough to be uh, to try to promote a broader kind of writing. Yeah. Um, the higher education is extremely varied in this country, and, and perhaps even professional history is varied. Academic history is mm -hmm. varied enough to allow pockets, and, and perhaps it's a matter of just finding the right job. Mm -hmm. No, I, 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 I see to what you mean, and, and I kind of agree with you. Well, I, I, I do agree with you. Uh, the, the, the choke point for me, though, is um, is really this curious fact that um, once once people get tenure, they um, they don't depart very radically from what they did before, and and I wouldn't say that has very much to do with administrations per se because they can't uh, fire these people at this point. They can they can prevent them becoming full professors, but uh, you know uh, be, being a full professor is uh, not really much of a bump from being just an associate professor. Um, but but yeah, I guess I just am, have always been relatively curious about this sort of thing. I'm not suggesting that people should go off the deep end or anything once they get tenure, but, uh, you know, it's a, a certain, you know, one can become a little bit more aggressive once one has, uh, one has real job security, but in our, our field, they, 
they tend not to do well, you that. Mentioned, you mentioned math. I mean, when do you think the um, prime point of creativity is for historians? For mathematicians, I understand it's at a fairly young age. Well, yeah, I, I think that, that I mean, again, I can't, I, don't, I, I wouldn't really um, pretend to know a lot about that. But I, I, for historians, it's much later, I think. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that I wouldn't write some of the things that I wrote early in my career, and yeah. I was somewhat embarrassed by them. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I do, I do, I do. Um, I, 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 I do feel like uh, I, I wish there were more historians out there, like like Christopher Lash, uh, who, who were you know sort of actively involved in these things. And there are some, you know, the History News Network is something that's kind of a, a new development in our field, and and I, I think that they're trying to do a little bit of this. And and um, I, I know that in in our own department we have people that write op-eds and this kind of thing, and I write a little bit of popular stuff when I when I have a chance. But I, you know, I can't say that I've been terribly successful at it. But, you know, I, th I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, let me um, shift gears just a little bit. We can talk directly about a couple of the essays that I found particularly interesting. One, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, this really terrific essay about Noam Chomsky and academic history. Now, I should say, uh, <laughs> shamefacedly, that I, I was one of those people that sort of dismissed Noam Chomsky and just said, well, he's a kook. Um, that's why we don't deal with you. But your uh, your essay, uh, it, it it convinced me that there's something more going on, and maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, whether I don't think he's a kook by any stretch of the imagination, but I understand that people do feel this way. Um, uh, unfortunately, Chomsky is somewhat like Mills used to be in the 60s for a lot of political people. It's a kind of litmus test. Mm -hmm. um, how you feel about Chomsky sort of supposedly um, uh, determines how you feel uh, about um, a whole range of political and intellectual issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so, leaving aside the fact that one may feel a number of different conflicting things about Chomsky or mm -hmm. about Mills, and I would put myself in the in the latter category that you know I, there's a number of things that about Chomsky that I don't like and some things that I do like. Um, when I went to read him seriously for the first time, just a couple of years ago, really, um, I was interested to know what historians thought. Uh, about some of his books, because he does raise a lot of historical questions. Although he, obviously he's not an historian, mm -hmm. um, and I went to the uh, you know to this uh, JSTOR and other uh, search functions, and I found nothing. Mm -hmm. And I, then I searched for particular books, and I was really just surprised to learn that there was not a single review of any of his books, of his 30 books, in any of the historical journals. At least none that were indexed on uh, JSTOR and a couple of the other major. Um, uh, search engine. So I, I found this uh, curious, and just wrote, wrote an essay about it mm -hmm. that I was more or less just calling for 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 a debate. Now um, I think that in some quarters this qualifies me as a as a Chomskyite, whatever that is. <laughs> but um, I'll leave that to those who prefer their um, you know their identities and labels. Um, but. Uh, I was just going for a debate, and I thought it would be lovely to find a, a debate, a stimulating, I should say, between someone like John Lewis Gaddis mm -hmm. and Noam Chomsky on American foreign policy. I mean, wouldn't, who wouldn't want to read that? Mm -hmm. But there isn't any discussion at all. They pretend he doesn't exist. Now, I suppose it's their uh, prerogative as, as as professionals as to kind of what they're going to review and what they're not going to review. But nevertheless, there were a lot of people like Irving Howe and Edward Said. Uh, who had been reviewed um, in the uh, in the journals, who weren't professional historians, who weren't necessarily even writing um, um, uh, professional books, professional history books, mm -hmm. um, and that's it. So, well, you know, I sent it off to um, Counterpunch, and ten minutes later, it was on the website. And uh, <laughs> twenty-four hours later, I got something around a thousand emails mm -hmm. all over the place. Really, nothing won't go away. Yeah. Um, you know that essay is, uh, and I in, got the probably the, the greatest in terms of the quantity response um, from people because Chomsky has a very strong 
mm-hmm. network around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are a lot of Chomskyites who look for any evidence of martyrdom um, in their hero, and I suppose that one can read this as such, although I didn't intend it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I thought it was very interesting, because I, I, I especially like that, that coldly empirical part where you actually go to JSTOR and look for reviews of Chomsky's books and you don't find any. That, that is pretty shocking, and, and you, because he, you know, I, again, I, I don't mean to fall back on this notion of public intellectual, but he is one uh, by any definition, and if we don't engage him, um, there are a lot of people that are reading him without the benefit of whatever small amount of wisdom that we could impart, and I, I think that's, that's sort of unfortunate. Um, in another essay, you talk about the um, the book review as a uh, as a vehicle for um, doing kind of serious public intellectual uh, debate. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what role you see book reviews playing. Well, I I. I haven't written a book review in a couple of years, um, <laughs> but um, because it's you know it's a it's a worthy and serious task that requires a lot of attention. Uh, but I um, but I read book reviews all the time, and unfortunately, I think the the conventional wisdom says that the book review space is shrinking in our newspapers and magazines. Although I don't think it must be shrinking in the academic journals. There seems to be as much interest as ever. I mean, it's in fact one of the prime functions of our history periodicals in order to evaluate new works. So I don't know that I have anything particularly interesting to say about book reviews, except for that they have great potential, of course. The discussion of books is um, is, uh, is is nearly important as uh, as reading them, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I guess what I would say is that uh, when I read the uh, the, the essay, um, I, I thought to myself, well, actually, very few people read these books, um, so all they're going to see is the book review. And I and I, and I am a fan of book reviews myself. I, I like to read them, especially ones that are written by uh, people that are sort of stylistically adept and have something kind of uh, serious to say, um, which which is I should also say that there are a lot of book reviews which I don't like to read because they are uh, they, there's been a certain influence of the flame on the internet on the book review itself and right. I, I, this I just cannot abide myself but right. I, I do like reading book reviews and I think it is a task that, that people should seriously take up I, I also I guess I would say in a little bit more pointed way the book review has been poisoned by um, especially in academic journals by the fact that it is now uh, used as an element in um, the promotion of people. And right. uh, so, you know, I know that in writing book reviews of books by my junior colleagues, I am very hesitant to say anything terribly negative, knowing that they face long odds on the job market. Um, I, 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 do, I do not consider it my uh, job to decide people's fate. <laughs> I consider it my job to review their books, and I, and I find myself not, not really wanting to write many of them because of that. Right, right. Yeah, those are, I mean, no, no one is, no one, is, no one's fate is hanging on what I have to say in a book review. But there are similar reasons why I stopped reviewing books because um, the form um, was just shrinking so much, and mm-hmm. and, and, and um, you know, one wants to make a, a real effort, you know, to read the other books that the author may have put out or read widely mm-hmm. in the field. Now, um, one of my friends, um, George Salaba, I don't know if you know George's work. Mm-hmm, no, I don't. Um, he's a book critic in Cambridge, and I think he's um, has no advanced degree, although he did study for a year. Intellectual history, uh, European intellectual history at Harvard a long time ago. George writes terrific book reviews. Um, he's one of the best, I think. And there are people who really, I uh, put him near the top of the list, who make it their primary 
vehicle for mm-hmm. uh, for expressing ideas, and essentially they turn reviews into essays. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that in the academic periodicals. Mm-hmm. No, it is very hard. One it's expects to is, is expected to make a digest, right? Thumbs down. Five hundred words. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's exactly right. So you have a number of essays about um, anarchism, and I, and I found what you had to say about anarchism very interesting because I, I wasn't really familiar with it. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you uh, how you understand anarchism. Well, uh, first and foremost, I understand it as a, as a terribly misunderstood and um, frightened, frightening um, idea. Um, I'd be teaching next semester at uh, a college in, in New York, and um, during my interview with the, um, with the dean of the social sciences, I mentioned that I might teach a course uh, on anarchism. And he said, and I quote, when I hear the word anarchism, I run the other way. <laughs> Uh, now, in fact, I'm teaching a course that uh, that is called something different, but it mostly consists of anarchists and those who have been taken up by anarchists, such as uh, Randolph Bourne and um, and Ag and Lewis Mumford, and even to some extent um, Lash. In um, far as anarchism, I think is understood, uh, is understood as primarily a political doctrine uh, against the state, which is which is fine, which is which is which is necessary, and certainly which makes up the main stream of anarchist thought, at least since the founding of the nation-state and the nation-state system um, in the 18th century, which is when modern anarchism kind of takes off. But um, in an essay on James Agee, um, primarily, and a few other scattered comments, I think that uh, anarchism as a body of ideas in our history, in American history, as well as European history, is much richer than its political entailments. Um, And it has things to say about morality and uh, also about aesthetics that I think are very interesting. And some historians are just now coming to link the anarchist impulse in um, pre-war American thought um, with, uh, with with modernism, what we, what we call modernism, what we have been calling modernism. Mm-hmm. So I think it's tremendously interesting um, and rich vein of ideas that are often clustered around uh, anarchism. And in, an essay on, in the essay on AG, I, I ask why no one has mentioned this about him. He called himself an anarchist mm-hmm. repeatedly. Um, um, so did uh, Robert Lowell, for example, and so did uh, Henry Adams and um, Flannery O'Connor and Dwight MacDonald and a whole bunch of other figures that we don't necessarily even associate with, with anarchism. So it was one of those essays, like I suppose the Chomsky essay, that I was curious about why the silence, why the lack of comment. And um, so I, um, I don't know how much use it is to go about calling oneself an anarchist, or, mm-hmm. uh, but um, but I think it's a kind of useful thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know one of the things that struck me while I was reading the essay is how anarchism, in a way, is bred into the American character. I, I don't know. I'm a big fan of Tocqueville, and, and he he was quite amazed at the independence of Americans and how they bridle against authority of almost any kind. And I know that uh, perhaps this is. Uh, just idiosyncratic, but I, I feel that impulse myself. I have a kind of a natural tendency, as I think, as an American, to uh, d- distrust. You know, well, let's call it what it is, sort of state intervention on, on, on any level or any kind of an attempt to control exactly what, what I do. And I'm not sure other people will say that's infantile <laughs> and they're not wrong in many ways. But on the other hand, I do feel it's a it's an important strain in American intellectual history and one that I, I personally would say is being lost because it has been sh- it has been shunted off uh, 
or, or foist it off on, onto a group of people who, uh, you know, t tend to be of relatively uh, right-wing and violent uh, strains. And I, and I feel that's, that's too bad that there's not a kind of more mainstream acceptance of this uh, real skepticism toward, you know, state intervention of, of any kind. But I, I appreciated the, the, the learning that it was that, that what I recognized in myself was, was something that goes back a little bit in American history. And I should tell you that I'm not an American historian, as you know, and I don't really know much about it. <laughs> no, that's not, that sounds right. I mean, the, the problem is, uh, one of the many problems is that um, with anarchism, in terms of m making it intellectually respectable, even if that's what we think we want to do with it, is to confront the, the right-wing use of it, which is called libertarianism, yeah. whose was origins lie in simply refusing to pay taxes. Yeah. So this is a problem um, that we have to kind of, you know, we have to overcome. Um, but I think that um, there's a, you know, the, the, the range of, 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 of ideas that are um, bound up in, in what we call anarchism is, uh, is very is very wide, much wider than people think today. Mm -hmm. People who call themselves liberals or call, call themselves conservatives or Democrats or Republicans, mm -hmm. which are just, I think, more or less useless categories, all of them, for um, for any kind of independent creative thought, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. what we want, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, and I think anarchism really, as you say, does cut across the kind of democratic uh, uh, Republican um, uh, breach in, in an interesting sort of way because I, you know when I think of myself as a historian and as someone who thinks about the past in a kind of an evaluative sense, I I see myself not fitting into one of these categories very well, but but constantly coming back to this notion that you know people should be free and independent insofar as it is possible, and and I I, I keep coming back to this idea and, and I almost feel it's native to me and I, and I don't and again the essay was terrific because it showed me exactly where, where these values come from. Again, I'm a big fan of of Tocqueville and and uh, you know he he I think gets to that part of the American character extraordinarily well. Um, let me ask you about a trip that you took to uh, City Lights Books. Um, that you talk yeah. about in an essay. I went to sc uh, graduate school in uh, uh, in California at Berkeley, um, thinking I was going to find something that I did not. And uh, I think you had roughly the same experience going to City Light Books. Right, um, right. I mean, this is one of the few essays uh, that haven't been published. So I'm I'm curious to know what you know more what you think if you care to tell me uh, about the essay itself. But I, um, I mean, this is I, I didn't find what what I was looking for, um, and I think perhaps most of the fault lies with me because I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking for, except for some difference in style um, between uh, Cambridge, where I've been living since uh, 2000, and and and, um, and City Lights in, in this style of politics, a style of culture criticism, which here is very sedate and very kind of you know, bound up with uh, progressive reform. Mm -hmm. But in, as I understand from my studying uh, radical history, uh, in San Francisco is much different. So, and in some ways it was, but um, you know, City Lights was a was a big letdown. It's a retail store, mm -hmm. like every other retail bookstore I've ever, mm -hmm. I've ever been in, which again is not City Lights' fault. Probably my expectations, mm -hmm. which are uh, which are very very much bound probably in the uh, to the fifties in the sixties. Mm -hmm. But I went to see a uh, went to hear a talk um, by uh, Jeffrey St. Clair at uh, in the upstairs at City Lights, and um, which I found a very curious experience. Um, St. Clair, I don't know if he calls himself an anarchist or not, but this is very much in the anarchist milieu, I think. Uh, there are varieties of anarchists out on the West Coast, and some of them are are very much interested in political violence, which is one of the things I mentioned earlier that we really have to 
talk about when we talk seriously about anarchism's history. Um, assassinations are very much part of mm-hmm. um, anarchism's history, and, and political violence was 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 very much um, in the spirit of the talk mm-hmm. that I heard when I was there, which in some ways dismayed me, in other ways shocked me. So I I came away, you know, more or less disappointed in what I found, but disappointed, I suppose, in a kind of sympathetic way. I tried to convey that in the essay. I'm not sure that I did, um, because. Uh, the left, this kind of left, this kind of left cultural criticism and political criticism has been very much isolated and very much, um, um, I won't say dying out, but um, I think a lot of the faults in uh, that kind of left, San Francisco left, which is, I suppose, surrounded by um, people like St. Clair, who are the editor of Counterpunch. There was some um, people from um, uh, the group Answer, Mm-hmm. rally about Cuba. Um, they just, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of simultaneously isolated from politics, from sort of party politics, but they're also very much isolated from, um, from well, the people or people mm-hmm. in general, it seemed to me, certainly, they were isolated from me. Um, seemed to be speaking an entirely different language, um, at once kind of angry and kind of curdled anger that didn't seem to really be going anywhere, but more importantly, seemed to shut down the conversation shut down um, the flow of ideas. So I, I, I'm not giving you a very good description of the essay, but um, no, no, I quite understand what you mean. I know that one of the things I found when uh, I did go to Berkeley, and um, I was quite radical at the time, I think, uh, or at least uh, I guess I would call it. Well, I won't try to characterize it, but one of the things I did when I was there is I participated in some um, protests. And I have to tell you that every one of these protests, uh, no matter what they were about, always ended up talking about Israelis and Palestinians. I don't know how we got there, but every single time we ended up there. And these things were being hijacked by people who uh, weren't really interested in talking so much as they were interested in yelling. And I I found that very, um, very disturbing because they took yelling for the exercise of uh, kind of a, a deliberative democracy, and I, I just didn't see it that way at all. Um, and I became very disenchanted with a lot of these, a lot of these groups, and I, I sort of ceased ceased my activity. And I suppose it was I've become much more conservative since then. Um, but I, I think that was kind of an important moment in my own uh, in my own intellectual development. Another thing is, is that you know San Francisco, for all that it has this, and Berkeley, for all that they have this. Uh, um, Especially Berkeley, for all that it has this reputation as being kind of a radical place, it's a real. It is. A, it is. It is a really corporate town. Uh, it, it, right. the, the university is it there, and it's people trying to make their way through the university so that they can end up in the South Bay working for some sort of startup. Right. Um, many, many of them, and uh, I, I, I only, I only realized this once I got there. Um, I, I didn't really understand that it was about getting credentials and then moving on to to, right. to, to, to employment of one sort or another. And again, I, I don't, you know, I think the business of America is to some extent business, but I was a little bit disturbed by the, the lack of, um, the lack of, I guess what I call intellectual freedom there. Another thing that I found, um, and sorry to editorialize during your interview, but um, another thing I found very disturbing was the extent to which these people live in uh, 1968 and don't seem to be able to get out of 1968. Um, and you know, I was around in 1968. I don't remember it very well. Uh, my uncle was fighting in Vietnam. That's pretty much what I remember. But I, I don't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really understand why there was this 
constant sort of hagiographical reference to things that were really a long time ago and had absolutely nothing to do with anything right. these days. Uh, so uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was curious. And the lions of the campus were all people who had, you know, could quote, um, you know, things from the free speech movement and this kind right. of thing. But in right. fact, it, what was going on there was, um, yeah, I mean, I, just again to tell one anecdote. Again, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to take up so much time, but I, I lived in a co-op. Um, and people in this co-op were very critical of uh, sororities and fraternities. And this was a kind of a hippie co-op. Um, yet, uh, and, and again, I pointed out to these people that the, the, at least the sororities and fraternities had in their charter and, in fact, did a lot of public service. And we did nothing. Right, right. <laughs> we did nothing at all right. except pay almost no rent um, right, and right. talk a lot about how radical we were. And I, I must say I found this in, in, incredibly d- disturbing in, in, in many ways. So, yeah, I was, I was a little bit disappointed that I, I, I have a lot to say about uh, what I think is going on in San Francisco and Silicon Valley right now, but I will not. Uh-huh. I will not. Um, I well, I have a l- only a little bit to say, um, <laughs> and based on this, on this one trip, and I, I, I want to mention it. I think it's very important that um, those of us who consider ourselves or think about, um, uh, about our, of ourselves on the left, somewhere in the vicinity of the left, at least, really ought to be criticizing those aspects of the left uh, uh, that we don't like and that mm-hmm. we think um, aren't going anywhere. And mm-hmm. it's not necessary to be a conservative or to even to become conservative in order to, uh, to criticize. Um, and uh, this is one of the things that I really like about uh, C. Wright Mills and also about AG and about Lash and mm-hmm. about the figures that I, that I keep mentioning, which is that they – um, or on the left, but uh, some of the most interesting work that they did were criticisms of the left. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this was a, a, a sort of an essay in that direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Well, that's a good segue into C. Wright Mills himself, and I wanted to ask you about that. Why uh, should Maybe you should tell our listeners, they may not know, uh, who C. Wright Mills was and why we should care. Well, Mills was, in, in, in some ways, and not, not to give it too much of a reductive uh, um, comparison, um, like Chomsky has been in the late 20th century, if you were uh, at all political, if you were all on the left in the 60s, um, or even in the 50s, you knew Mills' name like you know Chomsky. You would have heard of him. He was a radical celebrity. Uh, even if you hadn't read any of his books, you may know one or two things about him. Mm-hmm. Among the things you may know from his enemies was that he was nuts, um, <laughs> which is what we get from about here about Chomsky. So, um, you know, Mills was uh, uh, a Texan, and um, he came up through University of Texas and the University of Wisconsin. He got his PhD in sociology and uh, practiced sociology as a teacher of sociology at Columbia University uh, from 1945 until his death in 1962. But more importantly, he was a political writer, a political intellectual. Uh, It's not particularly – the the phrase public intellectual isn't uh, good enough to try to establish it, Mm -hmm. who coined it, but he did use it in 1958. And he's one of the heroes, incidentally, of Russell Jacoby's book. Um, the Last Intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote uh, four bestsellers in nine years. He was a big figure, an important mm-hmm. sociologist of power, critic of the American century, and also um, an interesting uh, character and personality. And that sounds a bit dismissive to say he's mm-hmm. merely interesting. He was, I think, one of the um, characteristic American anarchist thinkers who see the, um, the radical potential in the development of personality and character, mm-hmm. which is to say that he's part of this strain of um, thinkers and critics we have in America that uh, talk about the, the new man and the mm-hmm. new woman, which is, as you know, very important also in mm-hmm. 
Russian history, mm-hmm. um, modern Russian revolutionary history. Mm-hmm. But um, it's critical in, 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 in his letters to an American farmer who talks about the American as the new man. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing a biography of him that sort of works on um, a couple of different levels, so many levels that it's not finished yet. Um, <laughs> and one of the levels is uh, intellectual history, which is, uh, traces Mills' uh, immersion and his writings on American pragmatism, starting mm-hmm. with John Dewey, right. and trying to repair some broken links in the pragmatic tradition from Dewey uh, to Mills to uh, Christopher Lash and, and, and others. Um, another is uh, a political history that um, traces his writings as a critic of the American century, really at the point of its inception. I mean, Mills was one of the very few people who were maintained a critical, uh, more than a critical spirit, but a critical social thought um, from the 30s to the 60s, and in part because he wasn't uh, part of the 30s, he didn't. He never joined the Communist Party, and he wasn't really very radical in the 30s. And also, in part because he really, really wasn't alive part of the 60s. He died in 1962. Mm-hmm. But he's an absolutely crucial figure in the development of a political and social thought that that was striving to be consistently radical all through this period. Mm-hmm. So. Um, he wrote uh, The Power Elite, this is his most famous book. Mm-hmm. The White White Collar, this is probably his best book. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a, big, a book on Cuba. He wrote a book on labor leaders. Mm-hmm. He was one of the translators of Max Weber, introduced mm-hmm. Max Weber into American social science. Mm-hmm. So utterly transformed the discipline. Mm-hmm. A friend of Daniel Bell and Richard Hofstetter and Dwight MacDonald mm-hmm. and um, an enemy of Paul Lazarsfeld and Robert Merton. And mm-hmm. um, So he, he sort of... Um, he sort of, um, um, you know, cut to a kind of wide swath in the mid-century period. Mm-hmm. And so I've been working on a biography of him for a number of years now. And this fall, I put out a collection um, on, with Oxford University Press of his writing mm-hmm. called The Politics of Truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, wh- wh- if you could boil down um, the kind of nut, as they say in journalism, of his critique of the American century, uh, how would you do that? Well, yeah, maybe you can't do, do that, that at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I sort of see your point, but uh, the thing that's kind of interesting to me is he wasn't really, you know, usually when you see people of 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 his stature, they they are ex-communists, um, or they they were on the far left at some time, and he he avoided that. Uh, or on the other hand, you see them on the far right uh, in the 1950s, and, and he avoided that as well. Uh, so, what, what exactly was he saying to Americans about um, the American century that? that you find so interesting and that we should find so interesting? Well, he was saying something in particular to intellectuals, um, which is the, the subject of this book, uh, of writings, The Politics of Truth, which is out now, um, which is that uh, in order to be uh, radical, in order to be left-wing, in order to be critics, it's not necessary to become a party agitators like the old communists were, mm-hmm. belong to a party. It's he wanted them to be um, uh, radical and uh, in their own work. And for Mills, radical often often meant independence, which he just sort of figured would become left wing, mm-hmm. um, which is a, one of his one of his many blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he had a, a, a really a real strong message um, to, uh, to to intellectuals to sort of stand up for themselves mm-hmm. uh, in their workplace and to take um, direct action, which is another anarchist idea. Um, so he gave a lot of speeches um, to um, white collar professionals, um, he, designers, and, um, and, and and student groups and, and teachers. He talked to sociologists, but he also talked to um, you know, ex-Marxist and ex-communist in England, um, ex-communist in Poland. He sort of traveled all over the world and he talked to novelists and editors 
and journalist in Mexico City. Carlos Fuentes was a good friend of his. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was one of the um, uh, progenitors of what became the new left. Mm-hmm. And as a spirit is uh, very much at work, and uh, his ideas are very much at work in the Port Huron statement. And that's the kind of conventional story of how he of how he um, kind of embodied in his in his in his person as well as in his wrote in his work uh, uh, a kind of radical um, critical social thought from the 30s to the 60s. The criticism of America is panoramic and and very very kind of hard to to boil down. Um, he was a, a very strong critic of. American foreign policy. He thought that America had a real chance in the world uh, in the late 40s and early 50s to um, um, stand for um, the ideas of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which are inscribed in many of our official documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very disappointed um, that the, the, uh, about, with the Cold War and how the Cold War mm-hmm. realignment. Um, I mean, he, his first book was called The New Men of Power, which was published in 1948. And uh, 1948 is often thought of as the last year of the 30s. Mm-hmm. He he really sort of um, criticized the emergence of the national security state, the kind of shadow state that mm-hmm. goes to the CIA. Um, virtually everything now that uh, I left, or the, the new left, um, came to stand against. Uh, he was against and, and helped, helped teach young people, especially, why they ought to be against it. Mm-hmm. Um, the white collar, the new men of power, and the power elite uh, are a trilogy. Um, the new men of power talks about labor leaders. The power elite talks about um, the, um, the the uh, the elite, the, uh, the, the 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 top level of the military and mm-hmm. of the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, white collar talks about um, uh, corporate power mostly. So mm-hmm. um, you know the the, the criticism is, uh, uh, is 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 extremely. It's extremely broad, um, mm-hmm. and the three volumes I think sort of go to show that, or try to show that the sources of um, um, social protest and social criticism on a broad scale um, had dried up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old farmer labor alliance was no more. The Communist Party and its allies in the 30s were no more. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, he wrote as if there ought to be mm-hmm. um, indigenous sources of uh, protest and criticism and eventually determined that the intellectuals had the best chance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And what's important, I think, uh, to remember about Mills, what, what most people don't know about Mills, uh, even if they know a little bit about him, was he was a, very much of an international figure. And so I, I expect that when the biography comes out, um, that that would be one of the major contributions just to show that um, you know, we can't look at this phase of American history, this phase of American radical history, especially, mm-hmm. uh, only as uh, an American story. Mm-hmm. But it has to be an international story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's not one of the names that actually trips off the tongue when one thinks of the intellectuals of the 1950s and 1970s, the, the so-called New York intellectuals, I think they're sometimes called. Um, who was in charge of his legacy and why uh, did, did he not um, enter this uh, sort of pantheon? Um, well, I don't know that he hasn't entered the, the pantheon. I mean, every sociologist has to confront him at some point mm-hmm. or another. Most of them try to <coughs> – pardon me – most of them try not to. Um, and some of them actually think of him as the uh, you know, moving spirit behind their work. Um, so within sociology, he's still a figure of much contention mm-hmm. and controversy and influence, actually. Um, I think many American historians have been influenced by his work. I'm not sure that it's possible to get through a serious – Accounting of the 50s, um, especially um, without um, talking about 
white uh, without let's talk about power elites for sure. Um, but uh, so I, I'm not sure that he's as he's not exactly invisible. Um, mm -hmm. But there is an interesting story about his uh, legacy. I think which mm -hmm. was very much. Um, in the hands of a sociologist named Irving Lewis, Irving Lewis Horowitz, mm -hmm. who was a well-known figure within American social science and a bit of a neoconservative, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and that story is told in this uh, volume in, in, in one of the essays. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated story, but it comes down to um, issues of misrepresentation and fraud and suppression. Mm -hmm. Basically, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, I, I expect that's what you were, you were leading. Yeah, no, I was I, I was leading in that direction exactly. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I you know I'm always very interested to see exactly um, how people's uh, historical image is made, and I guess I'm old enough now to kind of see it happening. I know that um, I have been talking to people about David Foster Wallace, uh, who uh, killed himself recently, right. and uh, there is uh, you can actually watch the hagiography happen before your eyes. Yeah, there was a very silly article recently in the Times, I guess, was yeah. about his metaphysics. He was yeah. not a metaphysician. He was not a philosopher any yeah. more than George Bush was a philosopher yeah. or an historian. It's possible that our writers and our um, even perhaps our politicians are think in philosophical or historical veins at times, and that's one of the things that makes their work rich to us, but it doesn't make them yeah. um, a philosopher or a metaphysician or a story. I think it's, yeah, yeah so I don't, I guess I would call it geography, but it's something is very strange. People look for yeah. things that aren't there. No, that's exactly right, and, and, and I am uh, I am referring exactly to that article in the Times, because I, I, I did read it and discuss it with some people, and, and I, I just, it was it was the first time that I could, I could actually see um, somebody's uh, stature rise posthumously in that way and 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 to have what i think a really silly thing said about uh him things he would probably object to were he alive right. <laughs> marx not being a marxist uh the the um that it was just quite remarkable to see, to see it happen on that level and I, I think you know many people who i was discussing it with recognize this this happening um but but i think that really we're almost uh Powerless to do, to do anything about it, especially about that, that particular figure. But I, I do, I do think that once public intellectuals or people of, of his stature or Mills' stature um, pass on, that that um, you know that we we as intellectuals are to a certain extent in charge of their legacy, and and we will make them uh, what they are, and and our memories will be very selective, uh, you know. And and in the case of actually um, David Foster Wallace, I. Yeah, I, I, it's a it's a tremendously. I could talk for a long time about it, but it's a tremendously tra tragic thing I think that happened to him, uh, him dying the way he did, and so on and so forth. Yes, it is right, absolutely. Yeah, and and I and I think I'm afraid that it's um, that the basic message of his his addiction and his his inability to deal with that and the inability of the psychological profession to help him is the thing that's going to be lost and that, that he's going to be thought of as a kind of tragic uh, artist like figure who um you know through some rational discourse decided to 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 kill himself and I, and I just think that's entirely wrong uh but you know again that's that's not well, I, but as a, I don't know that we're exactly powerless, but we do have risks, I think, to, uh, to take on uh, with a certain kind of uh, counter-hagiography, mm -hmm. which is to say that one has to risk being tasteless. Yeah. Um, you know, to counter this kind of thing, one must say, well, no, he wasn't a metaphysician, and some of this stuff wasn't so hot, and yeah. I found this and that unreadable. And uh -huh. uh, I mean, it's a shame that we have to, you know, to sort of speak like this, but it's 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 important to do so. I think mm -hmm. we can't just sit back and sort of watch it take place. No, I think you're right. Uh, um, I think you're right. Yeah. And 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 you know and and in that 
in that spirit, I, I wrote uh, you know, an essay on Harvard a couple of years ago, or earlier, a couple of months ago, I should say, for which I took a lot of slack mm-hmm. uh, for being, you know, I just got an email the other day um, taking me to task for um, um, for criticizing my former students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, let's talk just a little bit about that. We've taken up a lot of your time, I know. But uh, th- this essay, which did gain a lot of attention, and I, I have, um, I, I have, uh, as you'll see, I, I, I provide a link to it on the posting for this interview. It's called uh, All the Privileged... Um, must-have prizes. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience writing that and um, what followed. Well, I did debate whether I should write it or not. It's basically a criticism of my experience teaching at Harvard, and I think, you know, one of the most important things that I was trying to put across is to treat students, maybe not all students, but Harvard students in particular, as independent uh, moral agents. When they become 21, they can vote and they can drink and um, they can do all sorts of things so they should be able to make reasoned moral choices about their own education mm-hmm. and I found the absence of the willingness to do so mm-hmm. to be a very frustrating part of teaching them. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a number of them as a matter of fact and had good experiences as well as bad experiences but um, you know the broadest sense of the essay was about um, the influence of class and wealth and privilege mm-hmm. uh, uh, none of which I had anything to do with personally mm-hmm. so I found the um, teaching in, in the Ivy League or in, in Harvard to be a very striking experience and perhaps a mix of um, high expectations um, um, figured into my experience, although I was there for seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I talked about the students. I talked about the difficulty in bringing them to the point where they could uh, think freely as opposed to thinking about uh, their career, mm-hmm. which is what they seem to be trained to do, mm-hmm. and it was most apparent, I think, where one would least expect it, which is to say in social studies, mm-hmm. which is a very liberal concentration and a very decent con- uh, concentration with an excellent curriculum, as a matter of fact. Um, but um, So I wrote the essay, and um, a lot of people criticized me very harshly for it, and mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't, but I got a lot of mm-hmm. criticism that I was out of line, mm-hmm. that one was not permitted to speak in this way, mm-hmm. that one was not allowed to talk about one. It's a kind of strange kind of ethics. So a recent, someone recently wrote to me and said that they wanted to tell my department chairman on me. Mm-hmm. I put them back and I said, I don't have a department chairman. So <laughs> good luck. Um, so, um, you know, I, in, in some respects, it's it's what Harvard gets for employing adjunct labor. What, mm-hmm. what do they expect yeah. us to do? Yeah. No, it is very curious. I, I know, you know, I, I taught there for a while myself and, and you know, I, I had a pretty good experience. They were very nice to me. It, it's quite true. And, and uh, you know, I, I owe them a lot. Uh, and, you know, I've taught in a lot of different places. And um, I guess... Maybe I'm a bit more jaded than you are in the sense that even in my own classes here at Iowa, where many of the students are absolutely excellent, I, I figure that I'm going to get, I don't know, one in 20 who's going to be really, really engaged with ideas. And the rest of them will be doing something else. But I, I guess I've kind of come to expect that. I can see why one would expect something different in a place like Harvard. But, uh, you know, and again, I, I do want to say that my students here at Iowa are excellent. I, I really do like them. And, and uh, they are... Uh, you have a semester right there, but they're filling out uh, a course evaluation. Yeah, no, that's exactly... Okay. No, I don't do that. Actually, I wrote... It's funny you mentioned course evaluations because I wrote... Um, yeah, course evaluations are evil. <laughs> Let me just say that um, they are they are evil, and I'm on the record saying that. Uh, yeah, I do, I do wonder about this. I remember I used to go to when I, when I was at Harvard, they made us go to um, uh, seminars at the Bach Center for Teaching and Learning, uh, where they uh, told us uh, how to properly engage these students, um, and I, I found that a very disturbing experience. I, I had a very different experience as an undergraduate. I went to a small college here in Iowa where. Um, 
uh, th- there was uh, there was very little mollycoddling, I guess I would say, and and I was required to do a lot more of it at at Harvard. Right. Um, and 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 I did I did that's why your essay really re- resonated with me, and and I, you know, uh, I, I know lots of Harvard students, Harvard grads are my friends, and so on and so forth. But you know, th- this business about thinking about the next thing all the time is is kind of soul sucking, and and I know that I've done it in my own life. I'm 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 as guilty as anybody. But I I do I did find the essay very very liberating. It kind of brought me back to the moment that you know it brought me back to why I went to graduate school in order to seek the truth and uh, speak the truth to other people in the hopes that I might live a better and more uh, a, a more reasoned life. Um, that 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 is something that you know I I guess I've. Yeah, I, I, I'm having trouble letting go of that <laughs> in midlife. I don't know if I, mean, I should. I, I mean, I might also mention that the the essay has been translated into um, into Portuguese and it's been published in a Brazilian journal of social science and right? also in in German. And I mention this only um, um, to say that uh, uh, it turns out that a lot of places uh, are going to higher education reform, or at least mm-hmm. has been until the recent crisis, mm-hmm. and they're restructuring their uh, educational systems, and uh, there, there, there are parties within each of these countries that look at Harvard as the jewel, mm-hmm. uh, as most Americans do, I think, as mm-hmm. well, and yeah. want to restructure their own uh, systems based on something that looks a lot like Harvard. Now, mm-hmm. there are other people, uh, wisely, I think, who, are, uh, who resist that, and so the essay has kind of entered into a political debate in various mm-hmm. places, yeah. um, which I didn't expect. Well, I should say to their credit, there are people at Harvard who I knew, um, the uh, former dean of uh, the undergraduate college of Harvard College itself. Harry Lewis was, yeah, I think, yes. in, in, per, in perfect agreement with you in many I ways. Without a soul, right? Yeah, yeah, right. He was, he was in perfect agreement with you, and and uh, really thought that uh, that undergraduate education had had gone a little bit awry at at places like this. And more generally, we shouldn't pick on uh, Harvard. I mean, I think that. Well, why not? Well, we can if we want, but I, you know, the, I, I've, I've, as I say, I've taught a lot of places, and and um, you know, I, I I've I've seen it. I've seen it very widely, I guess I would say, and and uh, you know what to do about it. I don't know, but this much I'm sure you are going to do something about it, um, and I, I probably am not. <laughs> no, but but I will be applauding from the wings. Well, I should say we've taken up a lot of your time, and I and I I really appreciate it. Uh, let me tell our um, our. Uh, audience that we've been talking to John Summers about Every Fury on Earth, which is a terrific book. And one of the things I do is I recommend it. If you know any intellectuals or you know anybody in graduate school or if you yourself are one, you should buy this book and read it because it's it's a really terrific read. And I I just want to congratulate you for all your good work. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Okay, good enough. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with John Summers about his new book of essays, Every Fury on Earth. I'm Marshall Poe, host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week.